netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour. So VFX has been transformed by the introduction of real-time technology, and especially the work of Epic Games and the Unreal Engine. Foundry, the makers of Nuke and Katana, have been exploring and collaborating with Epic to understand how they can leverage the real-time technology and integrate it into a Nuke pipeline. To explore this, we spoke to Dan Ring and Matt Meserell. Dan is head of research at the Foundry and has been there for like 12 years or so, and we've often spoken to Matt in the past. And Matt is the director of new technology at the Foundry. Now, the new Nuke Unreal Reader has already been used in various key Lighthouse accounts, such as Pixelmondo and Technicolor, and it's going to ship with NukeX version 13.1. Now, clearly, one of the places we're going to discuss that this is super relevant is connecting material used on LED volumes or sound stages in virtual production through to what you might traditionally think of as post-production. But given that real-time and the foundry is a kind of a new angle, I thought I'd just start by asking Matt how he describes what the Unreal uh, Reader actually is and why the Foundry decided to go down this path. Yeah, so we've uh, we've recently uh, been working on ways to uh, integrate into game engines. It's been a long-standing, um, you know, game engines have kind of entered a, in, onto the scene roughly around uh, 2020. Uh, when Unreal became really popular, especially as applied to virtual production, but you know, just across the board um, and just create a lot of excitement and innovation and techniques in the industry. And we've been thinking for a long time about uh, what does that mean to people's workflows and what does that mean to compositors and people using Nuke? Um, so the result of that is a new feature in Nuke 13.1, which is our upcoming release of Nuke called the Unreal Reader Node. And the Unreal Reader node is a new node in Nuke that allows you to connect Nuke to a live running Unreal Editor session and pull uh, high quality imagery, render passes and beauty passes from Nuke, uh, from Unreal into Nuke. And it allows you to manipulate uh, high, quality Unreal Engine, uh, high quality Unreal Engine renders with a compositor friendly workflow. So you can separate your scene into layers, you can uh, make adjustments with uh, the cameras. You can um, you can do all sorts of tweaking to different uh, different passes, isolate passes. Uh, essentially, it allows you to work with Unreal imagery uh, in a way that uh, you can get final pixel quality in Nuke, which is really kind of the strength of uh, you know the Nuke toolset and what compositors are often looking for when they're working with um, uh, digital data. Okay, but but inherent in that is that. Unreal tends to be running in real time and it's streaming and Nuke isn't. <laughs> so Matt, isn't that like, a, like are you just trying to say, oh, well, if I happen to have some assets in Unreal, I can now bring them into Nuke or is it meant to be more than that? Well, Unreal has this amazing feature, uh, which has been around for a couple of releases actually called the Movie Render Queue. And the Movie Render Queue is essentially uh, a capability in Unreal that's to render really high quality High resolution uh, uh, frames, um, and you know, not at real time. So it's almost like an offline render, but not offline in the sense that you know you can spend hours on a render farm. But you know, it's a non-real time, high quality mode for the Unreal render. 
And this is the system that uh, the Unreal Reader node uses in order to generate imagery. So you can kind of think of the Unreal Reader node as uh, partly as kind of like a, 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 a dashboard to really control the movie render queue from uh, a compositor-friendly workflow. But we've also gone and added a whole bunch of neat enhancements, like being able to control the camera and uh, isolate uh, just certain objects into layers so that you can use the movie render queue almost like you would use an offline renderer to bring the imagery in. So we're treating Unreal more as like a high quality, uh, a high quality offline renderer rather than as a real time uh, renderer. So the application of that, Mike, is often, you know, when you're on set, for example, in a virtual production uh, type of workflow where you want 60 frames a second, you want maximum speed, uh, real time when you're uh, setting things to an LED wall because you want low latency, you want the camera to track the imagery on the LED screen as much as possible. But then when you go into post or right after you've uh, kind of uh, done a take, you want to often clean up or go and get clean plates for what went to the LED wall. And uh, the Unreal Reader is a really great way of doing that through Nuke because then you can use the movie render queue and the Unreal Reader node on top of it to get really high quality renders that uh, match what you had on the LED wall and basically clean up your plates. So Dan, one of the things that Matt just went past fairly quickly in, in that rather comprehensive thing was the fact that you can actually have a Nuke camera that kind of overrides the Unreal camera doesn't destroy the Unreal camera, but just kind of overrides it. And I'm really fascinated by this because that makes it more than just, hey, render what you just did and give me all the passes. That means that the artist that the compositing sort of coalface has control over, over what they're doing. How much control does that Nuke camera have into the, into the Unreal scene? And is it just another Unreal camera or is it something else? So uh, I suppose Matt touched on something there that's that's really important is that is the like the Unreal Reader is about bringing Unreal into you know your your traditional yeah. pipeline and making it all fit and work. And one of the key things is you don't want to have the compositor necessarily the compositor need to know how to drive Unreal. So at the moment there is a sort of a, a separation where you know like you need to know how to use Unreal to use it. And what the Unreal Reader does is kind of it gives you quick and easy ways to get to use Unreal in the context of the of the compositing. So when it comes to the camera, then this workflow turns out to be really useful. Where um, you know uh, some a, a camera can have been baked into the scene either through virtual production or for if you're working on an animation show, the camera has been set up by layout or the camera operator and. The uh, you know, but as a compositor, you're you're looking at this and you're like, this isn't quite right. I need to make a tweak. So you can bring in the camera. You can either take the camera from Unreal, tweak it, modify it within Nuke to fit kind of the things that you, you need to do for for compositing. And then if you need, then send it back out as a new camera to Unreal, uh, and then uh, you know re-render from from that new camera position. You can also create a, an entirely new camera from within Nuke itself. So one of the, the nice things about this is um you know because you can render out. Uh, RGB plus D, you can get you render out these like extremely high quality and high resolution point clouds, which visualize get you allow you to visualize the scene within Nuke, and so you have a really good idea of where the camera is, and you can start kind of adding in additions or or even just testing things out and working with it. But again, all within the context of compositing. So in this scenario, is there is it always going to be rendered in the Unreal Engine, or is there like capacity for like partial rendering in Unreal, partial rendering in Nuke? Um, at the moment, it is very much, everything is rendered in, in Unreal. So 
um, the one of the challenges with Unreal is that the it's very hard to get data out of it. So this, I mean, this is exactly why this the movie render queue was uh, was built in the first place in order to give you pixel pixels out. Um, but I mean, obviously, then there's there's things like you know initiatives in USD and Omniverse that are you know uh, trying to allow um, you know kind of migration out of Unreal into other packages. But so far, it's actually still quite a very difficult thing to do to get enough data out that you could be in a place that you could re-render. Now, I mean, I think eventually that's you know if we dial forward, um, you know, five years. There will probably be better ways of doing this, and I think um, some like the Chaos Group um, have already, you know, created kind of renders that allow you to render Unreal scenes uh, or render over Unreal scenes. Um, but at the moment, yeah, it's, it's still very much the render happens in Unreal, and I think that that kind of plays to the strength here because you you generally want real time rendering for this this to work. But Matt, one of the things that um, Omniverse does is it makes round tripping possible. So is there any capacity in this that I look at my Nuke scene, sorry, I look at my Unreal scene in Nuke, maybe I tweak a camera and then I'm thinking, hey, I I really want to hand that back into Unreal. Is there any way back? Is that even a good idea? Yeah, that's a really good question. And kind of, is it a good idea is one of the the questions we always ask ourselves before we, uh, you know, take a workflow, um, you know, beyond its sort of sweet spot. So the sweet spot of Unreal Reader is really about bringing uh, flowing data from Unreal Engine into Nuke, um, especially around things like, uh, for example, you know, grouping objects together. Do we uh, take the groupings that were like the layer system in Unreal, or do we allow people to move, you know, create groups in Nuke and reflect those back into Unreal Engine cameras? That type of data. Um, we've we've thought about how that uh, backflow could be helpful, but more often than not, when we've talked to users, um, it's you know, it's just. It's not really, uh, you know, Unreal's not really designed to have multiple fingers in the Unreal scene at the exact same time, especially, you know, connected from external tools. I think the uh, workflow that Omniverse presents is really interested in that, interesting, and uh, we call those uh, hub and spoke workflows, you know, where you've got this central mm -hmm. hub of data and you have many spokes connected to it. And all of those spokes are essentially, um, you know, they're, they're essentially uh, different uh, lenses on the same data set and they're manipulating the same data set. But what we've built with Unreal Reader is what we call a spoke to spoke workflow. So what we've done is we've gone and tried to figure out how do we take two tools that don't normally talk to each other directly and get them to talk directly to one another. Um, we've developed another example of this, which is our uh, Katana and Nuke workflow as well, uh, where we've uh, where Katana can now uh, uh, send um, send the Katana scene to Nuke where you can actually see what you have in Katana in the context of your comp. And you can update uh, you can update your scene in Katana and get live updates in Nuke. And the artist in Katana can see those within uh, with the context of what the comp will, will result in. So that's a that's another example of spoke-to-spoke -spoke workflow. Um, so you know we're really interested in those. I think those are uh, those are sort of like low-hanging fruit for improving workflows over the over the short term. And I think uh, you know, the hub to spoke workflows are sort of the bigger picture of how facilities and uh, productions are looking to connect uh, more and more, especially as they're collaborating over the cloud or across distributed locations uh, where they need like one central source of data where they're all working on it. Uh, but really we look at Unreal, Unreal Reader as a, you know, a really simple thing, get your data from Unreal into Nuke and let people work on it as efficiently as possible.
But Dan, it's it's a little more than just. So I think that sort of like the important thing for me is, let's say I had um, a digital human, like a metahuman, and they had something that was in, occluding them at some point, right? Like when you're getting the layers in a nuke, you're not getting like layers as in, here's a mat for the visible part of the metahuman. You can get the entire underlying metahuman. And on top of that, you get effectively the thing that is the occlusion, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Exactly, yeah. So Dan, doesn't that open the door for the kind of cool stuff that you might want to do in the compositing environment that just isn't an inherent nuke thing? And of course, Dan, you know me. So what I want to do is I want to get that metahuman out and then maybe use uh, copycat or some other machine learning tools to do something to the face of that character. But knowing that the occlusion of the thing that's going in front of them, maybe it's street signs, whatever, uh, isn't going to trip up my ML because I have a clean path to the face and then I can put back on top all of those fun things. That's That's got to be kind of interesting, right? Yeah, and it's it's funny that you mentioned ML here, actually, because the genesis of the Unreal Reader actually came from our need to generate uh, data for, for our training system. And um, so we, we had a, a, a funded project called Volume Magic, which was around volumetric capture and reconstruction. And we were trying, trying to actually recreate some of um, Paul Devlevec's work. I think you had on your previous podcast uh, on some of his like um, uh, kind of image-based rendering techniques. And so we needed a renderer to, to generate all these passes really quickly in different varieties, different ways. And so that's where yeah, Unreal Reader came out of the need for us to be able to, to assemble our data sets uh, efficiently. Uh, and we use the, the ML server as the, um, the kind of the framework for how we did this. So this is kind of a, you can see the kind of progression for this. Um, but when it came, when it, then when it actually comes to using it, this is actually one of the, the key sort of um, kind of features that the Unreal Reader gives you over the movie render queue is the ability to um, select kind of objects and layers and, um, you know, basically you um, extract them separate from each other. Um, but it like, so in a, a common sort of stencil layer workflow. But the neat thing about this is that um, it extends on Unreal's stencil layer system in that it allows you to um, not only just sort of remove something or, or mask, you know, get the mask of something, but also to kind of render the thing behind it. So you're, you're, you're able to render the thing that's, that's um, you know, it's occluding, but also remove all the shadow and lighting effects. So this means that you can truly get the kind of the, you know, the, the linear addition of, of, of each object. And this brings it back to kind of all the kind of core things that compositors really want. Um, and this is, and again, it's all, it's, at the moment it's, it's presented in kind of um, a slightly awkward kind of way, but the, the UI is sort of being improved to have a more like cryptomat way of doing it where you can really quickly, you know, select something and say, okay, I want this, this, and this, but I want, I don't want this. And you can start, you know, performing kind of algebra on the various objects that you have. And, and, and again, this means that, you know, if you're working with metahumans, you can really dial in and get just the bits that you want to set up your, your data set. So how, how much, uh, dynamic range has that um, depth map got? And like, how much control do I have over pulling that in? Because, you know, the problem with depth maps is I might be concerned with somebody, you and I interacting, the scene of course goes on for two kilometers behind us, but I want all my, my you know, relative depth map up where we are. Or the alternative of course, is we're trying to put, you know, smoke and mist coming up the valley. And I actually want the five to 10 kilometers worth of, Matt, how, do, how, how much control have I got of kind of varying those things? Or is there just enough, is it like an open EXR kind of file where I've just got enough uh, floating point power to do almost whatever I want? Well, we pull the the data. You know, ultimately, we're 
uh, we're limited by what Unreal Engine can produce. Um, so that's that's the core uh, that that's the core limitation. So uh, Unreal does provide uh, scene depth and world depth passes, uh, which are uh, which are quite helpful. Um, so you know within the range of what the movie render queue is able to produce. And you know, and this is this is an area where we we're continuously seeing uh, Epic innovate as well is making their um, the render passes more and more, um, you know, I guess, um, composite or final frame friendly, and that includes the non-beauty passes, right? Um, so, you know, if you have, if you do have a really, uh, a really deep one, you probably want to go with, uh, with world depth, uh, as you know, the pass you want to extract the data from, um, and, uh, you can also get kind of scene depth where you, you have a slightly limit, more limited Z range. Um, not all of the passes in Unreal it's that it can generate through movie render queue, I would say, are you know all prepped perfectly for a compositing workflow because ultimately uh, it's a game engine producing the um, you know producing the the output and Unreal's uh, Unreal's uh, uh, render is is structured in such a way that um, you know you can't, for example, just generate new render passes at will without having to go in you know, write your own custom renderer, uh, but there's a lot there. Uh, every release of uh, Unreal Engine we see, there's improvements to CryptoMat, uh, improvements to their support for uh, OCIO, uh, all sorts of great stuff. So I would say, although, although it's, it's limited by what Unreal offers, uh, I think when people start working with Movie Render Queue and, and they start working through uh, Unreal Reader, um, they, get, uh, they get quite a bit uh, out of Unreal Engine. Just to speak to our detail to, to what Matt mentioned, um, I think, and in, speak to innovate, uh, Epic's innovation on this, uh, I think for 427, they have moved to a 32-bit depth map, which means that oh, that's you, right, you, yeah. you, 32-bit so support you, has been added, yeah. Yeah, so your, your 5 to 10 kilometers of fog should be no problem. Yeah. And so for people that don't know, what's the sort of color science coming out of UE4? Like, is this uh, like... Uh, the gamut, you know, controllable. Like if somebody doesn't know, like what are they expecting to get out of a game engine renderer? Uh, obviously, it's more than an eight-bit um, uh, H.264. But you know, how much uh, color science is there? Uh, so I, I don't know the the, the complete color uh, pipeline within Unreal. Um, but I mean, obviously, like Unreal and Epic have been focusing on getting an ACES qualified uh, pipeline. Um, it does mean though, and we, I mean, we can obviously take everything out in whatever bit depth comes out so previously we'd focused on, on 16 but we're now looking at 32 bit so uh, in terms of accuracy and precision we can, we can handle that the the challenge is always though um when you start speaking about color pipelines within unreal um it, it does mean it does it does have some the knock-on effect the obvious one is that it means all your lighting and look dev has to be done in uh, uh you know in that managed space in that color managed space so if you're bringing in um you know exrs to to work with as your as your textures you have to make sure that they they're all behaving appropriately and they're being imported in the right color space so that when you you know if you if you import an exr in uh you know acscg then it means then you, you want to make sure that if you pulled it through all the way through unreal when you read it in nuke it would still look the same if you had it under the you know the correct uh, lighting conditions so I, mean, I think that's still kind of the core challenge. I think it's, um, and again, I I, I, I can't say I'm, I'm, I'm an expert on like Unreal uh, color science, but this is the, the one that, that frequently trips people up in that like, it's not, it really isn't just the, uh, the question of toggling on OCIO or saying I'm working in ACCG in, in Unreal. You really have to make sure your entire kind of uh, asset prep is has also been conformed to yeah, this the same color pipeline. 
And Dan, how much does this uh, a difference uh, for you or or how much does it affect your thinking even between, say, a UE4 approach to that renderer and the UE5 approach to that renderer? Um, so did you mean in terms of the, kind of the, the recent kind of additions in Lumen and Nanite? Yeah. And those things? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's really interesting. It's um, uh, the, uh, like, I mean, they're incredible features, like really, really impressive. It's it's interesting that well I suppose the the focus of Nanite and Lumen really are around kind of real time I suppose that they bring in a huge amount of uh, you know complexity and allow a huge amount of complexity to be to be run at the high frame rates in real time. Um, one of the challenges with Nanite I suppose is is, is that it is sort of um, resolution dependent. So this may work you know your 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 render might look fine in kind of a viewport size or, or, or render quickly then, but as the resolution increases, obviously that bumps up your render time. Now this this becomes important obviously when you start getting into like you know expecting really re fast real time renders at 8K or 12K or higher resolutions. But um, you know it remains to be seen sort of like how that affects and you know say compositors working in uh, with the Unreal Reader, which is already we know to be near real time. But I think the the key thing is um, uh, you still you you want to be able to like uh, Epic has this nice kind of idea of being able to build an asset once and being able to use it anywhere. So um, I, I forget what I think it's called. Like, is it transmedia? I think is, is the term. But the idea that you can, you know, build your asset as kind of high res and high quality as possible, and then sort of translate it and bake it in as a sort of a nanite asset, um, and then you know use it in, at high frame rate. Then either in you know, LED wall or, or in a game. Um, I suppose for us, it's interesting that you're, you know, you're having to go through that that baking process. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it'll be a really powerful feature for I mean for anybody working in Unreal, and, it's, and particularly if you want to, you know, if you're using if you're working within that engine, at these at these assets which are like you know tens or hundreds of gigabytes, but work, working at them natively in real time, I think that's really impressive. And then to be able to just export all that quickly through Comp or into Comp, um, I think that's really cool. Um, I, I haven't played around with like Nanite or sorry um, Lumen enough to know like kind of how that might affect um, Unreal Reader, but I think Matt knows. Yeah, we, to this. yeah we, we've been looking at uh, UE5 a little bit and um, yeah, definitely everything Dan said about Nanite is, uh, I think is is great because the, the resolution dependent part is tricky. With Lumen, um, what's especially interesting is the approach that uh, Epic is taking, which is really the right, kind of the, the interesting approach for real time uh, around kind of amortizing lighting calculations over multiple frames. It seems to be like a really big win from a real-time point of view. Um, but it, I think it creates some challenges when you're trying to work in a sort of a, uh, you know, predictable, you know, non-simulation type of workflow, like when you're bringing things into compositing. Uh, we've seen these same challenges uh, even with UE4 around things like uh, motion blur uh, and some other uh, features where you know, you have to do like warm up frames. And if you don't do warm up frames, you know, camera cuts can be very tricky because uh, you get instability in terms of what types of frame you'll get at the first frame of the cut, depending on what frame you came in from. Um, these are tricky things. And we've tried to solve for a few of these inside of Unreal Reader. Um, but, you know, some of the cases are just sort of the, the nature of how uh, Unreal, uh, you know, when it does a, a render, it's a, it's a simulation from a previous frame. And that's just kind of how it works. I think Lumen will present some new challenges there, uh, especially around how the um, you know bounce lights or, or calculations are amortized over over frames and those uh, they call them uh, light buffers or something. I'll say I mean they amount to basically 
2D buffers where they're accumulating lighting data. Um, so yeah, so we, we haven't really kind of dug into that too much. Uh, Lumen definitely looks really, really great, but I have a sense that it'll probably need to be um, stabilized uh, over a few frames before you can generate like a truly final frame uh, from movie render queue for it. Yeah, it struck me that one of the advantages of doing this as a side benefit, I'm not talking about the primary advantage, is that you could set up if you're a sort of a more of a graphic designer or somebody that was doing kind of stuff, you've suddenly got this pipeline of being able to generate an enormous amount of elements from a very large library without having to really get sort of no 3D in the sort of more traditional sense. But also it's just so iteratively fast because, heck, the render is meant to be real time, right? That you're kind of allowing, like you you for for that individual, this actually is sort of like a window into a whole free world. It's not totally free, but you know, what I mean, free world of of assets, materials, elements, um, and things that you could then bring into a uh, to a new composite if you were wanting to uh, sort of pull that. It's not just a an issue of realism; it's an issue of like access to uh, assets because there's like a huge library of stuff, isn't there, Matt? I mean, the the capacity to access that is, I guess, not to be underestimated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's exciting about uh, Unreal Reader as well is, um, you know, you really look at the excitement around Unreal Engine. I mean, it really blows open the doors around how do you, uh, how do you get uh, CG content uh, in real time, right? Uh, it, you know, really, really high quality CG content in real time. Um, with Unreal Reader, what I think it adds to the technique is, um, you know, we, we've heard this from a lot of people working in virtual production as well, is the, the reality is virtual production is uh, often like a mixed uh, a mixed technique where uh, you may have some CG content, some plates, you may have some elements that are, you know, two and a half D or projection maps. Um, and very often Nuke is kind of the glue that brings all of those, um, all of those elements together in terms of how do you how do you mix different types of uh, different types of content in together to get a final image? Um, I think for uh, what what Unreal is doing to be able to kind of make the production of three D content really democratized, and this is where you know everyone's talking about metaverse and all the excitement around that. It's really about democratizing the three uh, D content. In terms of Unreal Reader, I think it's even kind of bigger than that in terms of filmic workflows where uh, it's not just 3D content, it's all kinds of content, live elements, uh, pre-recorded plates, all types of things. And it just gives a better tool set for mixing all of those together. So um, it's a really exciting time. We hear this from everybody working with Unreal Engine is it's not just exciting because of Unreal, but it's exciting just because of, um, you know, all of the, the techniques are kind of uh, brought back to uh, sort of an innovative, uh, bubbly kind of, uh, type of uh, type of state like they were several years ago. There's no there's no recipe anymore for working with this type of stuff. Everybody's kind of inventing new ways of working with uh, all this type of uh, mixed content that they're capturing on stage. And lots of challenges are coming up. Like how do you you know capture all of the metadata? How do you bring in USD uh, scenes with Unreal content with uh, with pre-recorded plates? Uh, how do you uh, move everything into post-production from onset? Um, so these are the types of things we're really interested in that we think will happen over the next little while. It's not just about the 3D content. It's about just the production of, uh, you know, the final image um, and uh, how that all comes together. Dan, I wanted to ask you a different question, which is a little bit like workflow, but there may be a technological angle to solve it. But the, the inherent thing about a game engine is it's designed to build a world and and then you would sort of film in the world, like 
because normally you're building a world and the character's running through the world, right? This is just not fundamentally the way a filmmaker approaches a shot. The filmmaker dresses to camera. They lift the chair up with some, you know, sandbags or whatever because it just looks better in shot, right? And and yeah. it has a visual continuity for the audience, but not a mathematical continuity that it, it's the same world, right? The pot plant keeps yeah, yeah. moving to make sure it's always in the in the right corner. Um, how do you kind of get a handle on that when, or, or is there any tools to get a handle on that? So sort of snapshot. Because if I wanted to go back to something that we did three days ago and my nuke setup is like, you know, wanting to tweak something and then that world has just kind of moved on a bit. And how do I kind of find that world other than just constantly taking separate full save kind of snapshots? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, one of the nice things about that, so that Unreal, the Unreal Reader gives you, is um, is that the and from speaking to kind of customers who are in, embedding this in their pipelines right now, is that it's the notion of kind of versioning. So if, I'm going to talk about the versioning uh, challenge first, where folks don't necessarily want to um, version the pro Unreal project every time they make a change, but they do want to version the sequence. So, because the, the project can be huge, and if you're having to pull down uh, kind of new projects all the time, then that's if you've just moved a chair, then that that's a challenge. But you can version the sequence within the, the project nicely. And what Unreal Reader uh, then gives you is if you know if you have the sequence that's that's baked there, then Unreal Reader will point to that sequence, and it means then that when you're asking it to render, um, you can you can basically capture kind of the, the scenario or the the scene. Uh, like all, of all the render settings that you need and all the kind of, you know, how you want, how you set up that thing to be rendered. And that can all be saved as, it, with it, uh, like the state can be saved within the nuke script. So it means then that, you know, you're, if you have to make these little noodles or changes, I mean, you may, you may want to make them in comp, um, in which case Unreal Reader World can just do that there. But it also means then that, you know, if you need to go back to the Unreal C and say, okay, for this sequence, look, I'm going to move this chair up, you know, it's, it's, it's a baked animation. I'm just going to move it up because it fits better with the camera. And um, I can do that, save that as a sequence, and then it can just be brought into Unreal Reader, uh, again, into your kind of your, your comp, and you can, you know, you're seeing the output of that moved chair. So Nuke is locking to a version that I've saved, a sequence that I've saved effectively, right? Or a sequence that I've versioned. Exactly. It, it gives you another place in which to kind of, you know, layer in your changes. And this is, again, kind of going back to kind of the hub and spoke model of, um, you know, like how and where do you preserve preserve decisions? And, um, and then going into in like in a, in a physical example is um, like we had the same challenge in a recent sort of virtual production test where, you know, things just don't look right on camera because you're working to this. We've modeled the world out. We're like, we're, we're, we're everything is correct. We have measured things virtually and physically and like, yes, they're correct, but they don't look good. And yeah. um, we had to kind of move, move the ground level in order to kind of accommodate things. And, and again, where do you, where do you preserve that change? Because that needs to be in it for the comp or for the, you know, when you're actually baking out the final picture, but for the unreal render to the wall, you don't necessarily want to capture that. So it, it's the question of like, this is where um, uh, this starts to lead into what, what you know, uh, discussions are in metadata and like decisions that you've made on set, not just about like, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, adjusting ground planes or things like that, but, you know, camera lenses uh, about, you know, color information, what colors have you, any, and color um, transforms that you've had, had to apply to the LED processor, for example. So yeah, there's there's, um, there's a whole world of where all those decisions kind of need to be tracked and kept, um, and that that that's another really interesting area for us. And we've we've tried to make it so that any decisions that you make in Unreal 
are preserved and actually can be passed through as metadata into the Unreal Reader. So again, from lens information to uh, transforms to um, kind of animations as well. So Matt, if I want to set this up, like what advice have you got? What I mean, I guess I'm asking, what do I know not to, what don't I know to ask? Is it, should I be running this uh, on the same machine? Is it like, like, is there any catches or gotchas or like just in terms of the practicalities of implementing a system that has a nuke running, taking in and being able to edit and uh, work on uh, UE files? Yeah, I mean, it works, Unreal Reader works well uh, on a loopback over the same machine, uh, and it works well uh, on uh, across across different machines connected over, over a reachable network. Um, what we, we find is, uh, is interesting is, you know, a lot of folks want to run Unreal Engine on Windows because uh, it, it tends to work best, um, but they, they want to use some tools like Nuke, for example, on a, on a Linux box, right? So um, it's, it's, great. it's great to be able to connect over a TCP IP connection for these types of workflows because it gives you that flexibility in terms of the environment and, and that type of thing. Um, so, that's, um, so you can mix and match your, your operating systems. We support uh, the Unreal side, the Unreal plugin of Unreal Reader on Mac and Windows. We don't yet have Linux support for the Unreal side plugin, um, but that's, uh, that's something we're considering in the future. And on the uh, Nuke side, um, we support uh, Windows, Mac, and uh, and Linux. Um, so uh, yeah, we've seen we've seen folks use use both. Uh, generally, the thing we hear the most from people trying to run Unreal Reader is uh, you know the scarcity of graphics uh, graphics cards. Uh, you've got you know a machine with a really beefy GPU. That's probably the one you're running Unreal on. And if you happen to have an extra box for Nuke, then uh, you know you can split them up. Or if you're sharing one machine because you're, you're kind of limited by what hardware you have, uh, it works really well both running on the same machine. Yeah, it's an interesting problem, that, isn't it? Like uh, with uh, the chip shortage worldwide and, um, and just the entire supply chain uh, hiccup that uh, has caused an NVIDIA card to be worth its weight in gold. Um, so, uh, so if I was running it on the same machine, where do you think my bottleneck would be? And you mentioned like the Mac there, which is obviously not running Nvidia, but has um, shared memory and you know quite a lot of it between, um, especially on the the Macs, uh, M1s and stuff. Like, where do you think if I was trying to run it on the same machine, is it is it going to be bottlenecked out of the GPU? If I had two GPU cards in there, I'd be okay. Or is it going to still be heavily influenced by RAM? Or what's your feeling on the combined grunt requirements of both Nuke and UE4 on the same machine? The uh, so the um, the workflow for using the Unreal Reader, like there's there's a couple of ways you can use it, but the kind of the best way of doing it is. Um, you generally within Nuke, you try and work on a single frame at a time. So you want to set up all your render settings and get them and get start like testing that you can pull in pixels in the way that you want with the render settings that you want for the objects and layers and AOVs um, that, that you want. Um, and then once uh, the reason why you do this is because the movie render queue that, uh, that the, the technology that's under the hood that this all relies on is that it generally likes to work on sequences. So it has a kind of a, a warm up time and it has you know, a process of each frame. And then it has a sort of a, a, a cool down time where it cleans up everything. 
Um, because of this, it means if you're rendering a single frame, it's still having to do that warm up, render a single frame and cool down. So getting one frame, and this is just, a, again, going back into the nature of, you know, a, a game engine versus a DCC tool, yep. is that we're, um, uh, is that you, you have to do this. You have to, you have to start spawn the simulation, <laughs> snapshot the frame and then get the thing out. Um, so that's the, that's why like getting one frame kind of is, is, is costly relative for the, for what you're getting. So once you've done that, but you're happy with that one frame and you've set up your settings, then you can click sort of, you know, render the whole sequence. And this is where the real time stage part comes in very, very nicely where, uh, you know, say like a, a reasonably complicated scene that uh, you want to render out say 300 frames, it's under half a minute. Like it's, it's incredibly uh, fast. And um, because you're you're amortizing the, the startup and, and kind of cleanup phases, and so so, so this means that it's um, it's once you're 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 happy with your scene, actually getting the pixels and just like baking them out is super quick. So in, in that case, you often you're often not using Nuke and Unreal super live at any one time. You might be just noodling one frame and waiting for updates. So there's there's not a huge amount of contention if it's still on the same machine. Um, normally you would, you know, you, yeah, you you might have it still open, but once if Unreal is open in the background and you're using Nuke at the same time, you might be competing for with some uh, for some VRAM. But um, overall, because because you're generally not asking Unreal to do a huge amount all the time, you're usually okay. Yeah, and like Dan said, you know, often the the cost of the uh, cost of what it takes to get those final frames out of Unreal, I mean, it can scale wildly depending on the settings and the, the types of things you're doing with Unreal as well. So for example, if you're doing stencil layers um, and isolating objects, you have to, uh, you know, the, the, the process, like it's, 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 a, it's, a longer, it's a longer processing time. So if you've got a, a Nuke script with multiple Unreal reader nodes and each one is rendering different slices of the scene with different uh, stencil layers, um, you're gonna wanna work within the context of one frame you know, get get everything kind of lined up, and then you can go and render out the sequence for each of those Unreal Reader nodes, and you can kind of work on them sort of one at a time. So we've got a really great uh, kind of easy button for that, where you can uh, in your Unreal Reader node, you can say you know, generate a uh, generate the EXR sequence and uh, put an actual re read node in the the Nuke script that just reads from the generated EXRs, and it does that does that automatically. And then if you do tweak the settings, you can go and refresh that. Um, so we do give the ability to have the, the sort of the live link workflow where you get you know feedback directly over the wire, but then you can kind of bake it down very easily with uh, with a, a simple button click and then move on and uh, kind of work with the the bake down sequence. So Dan, what's the sort of foundry not not the publicity marketing position, but the sort of the the research team's position on real time? Like is this, indicative of like you guys being super interested in this in or is this more like uh in the pantheon of things that you have to worry about um this one was relatively fun and easy to do um i mean thank i wouldn't say that this is uh, relatively easy to do unfortunately the um the engineers like Re rebecca and nile and sean have done an amazing job with this really some ninja level engineering to, to make this possible but um it, what we think of unreal is um or unreal time just in general is um I mean uh, we kind of think of if we, if we dial forward ten years um kind of what's changed and what needs to change to get there like we're seeing a kind of an explosion in demand for content across like like streaming over since COVID but also I mean features are are you know nearly all predictions are saying that features are going to be uh, you know ramping up as well so there's no there's no current slowdown in kind of demand for high quality content 
And if we think about this kind of the constraints in the system here, we're talking about like, you know, number of artists that are available in the world, the kind of the time pressure, cost pressures, that you, you need to look at kind of where the efficiencies are, are, are being lost here or, or where they can be won. And real time as a kind of a way of working is, um, uh, is, is just a very obvious way that, that you can in, increase kind of your, uh, kind of increase your quality, increase your throughput. Um, but also in, in enhancing the creative process. And I think we've touched on a couple of things like the hub and spoke model of how things work. And um, I think uh, Grant Miller from Ingenuity Studios gave a really nice talk at SIGGRAPH on um, kind of uh, USD, but how it interacts with like, um, how it breaks up stages of uh, and compartments of pipelines. And I think that's one of the key things that real time also enables. So outside of game engines, just like now that the genie is out of the bottle of like, this is how people want to work. Unreal is a manifestation of, uh, of how people want to work. And it's kind of really caused us to kind of reflect on, well, how do we enable that? Like, how do we get like kind of kind of modern, like how do we get DCC tools to be more real-time? What does real-time mean? And we've had, you know, the real-time conference is a, is a great example of uh, exploring the concept of real-time from a whole bunch of different industries. Um, but it's still getting to the nugget of that, of what does that mean for people actually producing content? Um, and where do they produce the content? So virtual production, again, another wonderful example of, um, you know, how people want to work and, and kind of bridging the boundaries between pre, like pre-production, post-production and production. And uh, so, I mean, I suppose long story short, it's, it's this, um, it's, it's, it's a new paradigm of how you work. And like we're, I think similar to machine learning, we're kind of getting over the hype cycle of it. And we're actually trying to nail in, like, what does this mean for people? Why, how do people want to work? So this is a, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think there's a, there's a huge amount left here from the rendering side to like the, the UI side to uh, informing people like filmmakers and the creative folks who are, you know, uh, might've been a bit more allergic to, to technology to how do you how do you get them involved? How do you get them in front of a, a meta human session and start getting them to like animate things to kind of emote, you know, and get the emotions across from things. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, um, uh, yeah, like it's a it's it's a, it's a big topic. It has a, it encompasses a huge amount of stuff, but it's um I think it's only the beginning of you know where we need to get to for the next ten years. Matt, is this a case of uh like if we think of foundries being very very high quality, but not traditionally thought of in a real time context? Is this a case of the foundry having to learn a lot about UE four rather than UE four or sorry Unreal having to learn a lot about about Nuke? Like, is it um really you guys trying to to accommodate this and if so does this mean you have some kind of desire to see something like nuke end up on set yeah that's a great question um i'd say things like unreal and game engines in real time are not necessarily where we've um where we've had to to learn the most we we have a lot of experience working with real-time technology and and just computer, you know, computer graphics uh, depth of knowledge is very is very deep. Um, I think where the biggest change is exactly like you said, Mike, is it, it changes how the people are working together and how the process is being done, and trying to understand, uh, you know, ultimately as you have uh, more real time technology that enables people to work uh, more closely together and earlier on in the creative process. And trying to understand how uh, to bring our tools, which have traditionally been, you know, really strong in post-production, but how do they work in those environments that are closer and closer to the earlier stages of uh, the production process? I think is where, uh, you know, where the the excitement over real time is really uh, getting us to to think and to learn uh, to learn the most. 
you know, seeing, you know, when we talk about posts now, it's, you know, it's almost awkward to say in a world where, um, you know, you're doing almost kind of post-production on set and you're doing it uh, almost, you know, during even, uh, even during pre-production where you're trying to, you know, pitch ideas and you want them to look as, you know, to, to certain level of quality where you really feel like you can go through that gate and then you want to carry on that, you know, with continuity into onset. And then, you know, you want to be able to see, you know, almost final imagery before it goes on to post-production. This idea that we're going to live in a world where people are going to wait, you know, six months to, to see what everything looks like when the green screens have been replaced is, you know, that's, that's going to be like the age of the dinosaurs in a few years. You know, we're all going to want to see that on set. So yeah, I think that's I, the challenge we're trying to, we're trying to meet. I guess uh, a huge thing for me is just whenever you can get rid of the idea of having to redo something, because we did it in a nimble form over here, but of course now we're going to redo it properly. And the more you can get some tools in so that you're iterating on it to get it better, not saying, okay, well, that was good. Now we'll switch gears and try doing it all properly with completely different technology, different user interfaces, because so much of that conversation should be captured and, and slowly changed rather than the experiments done uh, let's go again with a whole different uh, setup. And I, so I was really enthusiastic to hear that you guys were, were doing this um, because the earlier you can get it into what will be the final polishing pipe and the more nimble you can make the, the new uh, experience, the better off you are, I think. So, yeah, I think it's great. Um, where, where it's going to be across everything, right? Like it's not like uh, in terms of new products, it's just standard, yeah, on the next release? It's, uh, yeah. I think it's part of our, our, our NukeX package. Yeah. Uh, yeah, NukeX and Nuke Studio, I think. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, guys, thanks so much for taking time to uh, talk to us about it. And uh, again, I'm like really enthusiastic to see how this goes. So, and Dan, I'm sure there's going to be some machine learning chats that you and I are going to have about this once, uh, once we get a little further down the track. Yes, yes, please do. And if you want to pick it up, if you want to, you know, work on a project on the MetaHuman uh, data sets, yeah, happy to help. Well, I want to thank both Dan and Matt so much for taking time to talk to us. I'm really intrigued to see where this goes. And uh, I think it's great that the experiments that they were doing actually led to this in the first place. The more that we can sort of streamline and connect up these two worlds so that people don't have to redo stuff, so that people don't have to um, just start over, uh, but actually can continue working through what uh, they've started with obviously the same tools, the better off we're all going to be. And I want to thank you guys so much for taking time to listen to our FX podcast. Um, if you'd like to see more about this or some examples of what it looks like, um, check out our uh, story, of course, over on fxguide.com. John will be back uh, next week. And until then, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.